Revelation chapter 10. This is our last book in our journey through the scriptures, Revelation chapter 10. And John is writing to seven churches about a vision he gets while being exiled for the sake of Jesus on an island where political exiles would be sent by the Roman government. And there he's encouraging them in light of things that are to come. This is a time, 90 AD, 60 years after Jesus, in which the gospel has gone forth. It has reached the Roman capital, the city of Rome itself, and things are becoming, things are coming to the light that there is a group of people in this empire that do not see Caesar as the Son of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that do not claim that Rome is the eternal city that shall never fall. And they are therefore viewed as dangerous to the Roman good. And in the area in which John pastored the seven churches of Asia Minor, there was a real competition to get Caesar's attention because where Caesar smiled, that area prospered. And they wanted Caesar's attention. And one of the ways to get his attention at this time, the cool thing to do in the empire, was to build temples and statues devoted to Caesar as the son of God and to have incense burned to him. Well, as city magistrates would try to be on the cutting edge of the competition for Caesar's attention, would build these temples and put up these statues, they would begin to notice that there were groups, a minority, but nonetheless a dangerous group of people who would not give Caesar allegiance. And they were seen as the anchor dragging progress from moving forward. So the church became the subject of persecution, not the intense persecution we know of later in history when hundreds and thousands were thrown into the Colosseums and killed all over, but the beginnings of social persecution were developing. So you would lose economic ties, you might even lose your job, you might have sanctions or fees or taxes put on your family, especially just because you're Christians. Uh, there was obviously physical harm and it could ultimately lead to your death. That was happening at this time already. But nonetheless, it was a hard time for the church. And their own leader has now been exiled as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. And it is here that Jesus visits John, one of his last living of the 12 followers, and gives him a vision of his plan for the future and of what the church is going to be in light of Caesar's dominion. So we are in the middle of these visions and we're working our way through them. So shall we recap a little bit? We shall. One of the most important things to realize as we come to this book and which has produced a myriad of interpretations is to understand how the writer understands how he's writing it. Very important place to start. And John recognizes that he's getting a vision from God about Jesus and his plan, and he's writing it in the only conceivable medium he knows how to write it in. Language from the Old Testament. The church has no New Testament Bible, they might have a couple of Gospels already formed, and they might be using them. But the official scripture up to this point is the Old Testament. And Christians knew the Old Testament very well, especially Jewish Christians like John. So he is communicating the vision through much of Old Testament imagery. So much so that Revelation has 404 verses. Out of those 404 verses... 278 are referencing the Old Testament. That comes out to about 70% of the book of Revelation is actually made up of images from the Old Testament. That is an overwhelming number, and you cannot possibly begin to understand Revelation if you don't have some inkling of what's going on in the Old Testament. To show you in perspective how much this is, Paul, in all of his writings, only alludes to the, New, to the Old Testament about 200 times. Revelation, in those 278 verses, is alluding to it 500 times. It's 300 more times than Paul, and it's more than all of the New Testament combined. So when you come to Revelation, you're coming to very much 
Old Testament ground recast for what's going to happen in the world today. Therefore, we need to understand that Revelation is the great therefore to the previous 65 books of the Bible. It's not giving us new information. It's recasting old information in new and imaginative ways. It's a collage, if you will, of the 65 books of the Bible. Nothing new, but recast for us to see differently. So with all this in mind, I argue that, yes, approaching Scripture literally is important, but sometimes literalism gets in the way of reading it literarily. And reading Scripture as literature is important because we're dealing with written words and we're dealing with humans who are writing God's revelation through the medium God gave us called literature. So we also have to understand it in a literary aspect. And so we have to understand prophetic prophecy. And that is that if Revelation is referring so much to the Old Testament, and the prophets of the Old Testament are writing so much in a poetic format because they're trying to capture these grandeur, these grandeur visions of God's future, but they don't have words to describe it, so they have to reach for metaphors around them because metaphors don't limit the meaning of visions. They have an open-ended meaning to them. So they grab these and they cast this prophetic poetry. So what we need to do in Revelation is we look at it and we say, ah, this is from Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have this picture. He, uh, John is using this picture in Revelation. So what did it mean then, and how is it supposed to be used here in Revelation? That's reading with prophetic poetry, understanding the prophets before we try to manhandle Revelation with newspaper clippings. So... Now, last, uh, here's where we're at. So John writes to his seven churches in a letter format. Then he enters into the vision itself. He's brought up into the throne room of heaven where he sees the one who is seated on the throne while the church is uncertain about their future and Caesar seems to be a great enemy against the church. John sees in heaven the one who sits on the throne is not pacing back and forth worried. He's not twiddling his thumbs in panic. He's in control. And in the midst of the scene of the one who's seated on the throne and in control, we have worship happening in concentric circles. And he describes the layers of worship as they all center around the one seated on the throne. And then there's this moment when John realizes there's something in his hand. And it's a scroll with seven wax seals going down the side of it that have closed it shut. And we learn that this is in the imagery of Roman legal documents, typically title deeds. When you passed on inheritance to the other generations, this is what the title deed would look like, sealed in such a way. And that God is ready to give the earth to the rightful owner and ruler of the earth. And so John then sees a lamb as though he has been slaughtered coming up to the one who sits on the throne and receives the scroll. And we know that this is Jesus, the lamb of God who was slaughtered. And then all of heaven erupts in praise and actually bring, we thought the praise to God was good, the one seated on the throne. The praise to the lamb is getting even bigger. They give God three glory descriptions. They give the lamb seven. Worship is just getting crazier because now the rightful king has taken the title deed to the earth because now he's ready to bring the kingdom to the earth. He's ready to rule it as it was meant to be ruled. And the phony kings and phony kingdoms of this world are not going to stand in the way of it. And so heaven is excited. And so we then see the lamb in chapter six, beginning to open the scroll one seal at a time. And the world is experiencing the birth pangs of this event that's going to climax with the opening of the seventh seal in which we read in chapter eight that when the seventh seal is opened, there was silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Because this was the great anticipation Thousands of years of sorrow and pain and darkness and horrible rulers over the creation have been going on. 
And now finally, all of creation and all of God's people, all of heaven divorced from the earth because of human rebellion against God have come to the moment they've been waiting for. The rightful king is about to completely open his claim to the earth. So the seventh seal's opened and heaven is silent in anticipation. Now, as you would expect with any royalty who's going to stand up and read the royal pronouncement, you need to call your subjects to attention. So as the scroll is opened and prior to being read aloud, seven angels come forward with seven trumpets. And each of them begin to blow the trumpet to call all of creation and humanity to attention. Your king is about to read the royal pronouncement. This is news, people. <laughs> it's saying, you, the, the person you think that you serve as the king, the kingdom you're willing to die for, or you're investing all of your life and all of your, uh, your resources into to improve and make better, these kingdoms and these kings are in danger to the one true king and kingdom. Listen up. Get your allegiance right. The true king is about to speak. So the seven trumpets bring these series of judgments or, or things that happen on the earth that wake people up. The first four happened to the created world. The last two happened to um, human beings. And then the seventh we're about to see tonight momentarily. Do you remember how we looked at these seven trumpets? How does John describe these future warnings that the king's about to make his royal pronouncement? Uh, he reaches back for language he understands. 20 years before he writes this vision, the capital of his people and the building in which so much of their worship had centered around the temple in Jerusalem, had fallen to the Roman armies. And the Jews no longer have a home. They no longer have a temple, and they're scattered everywhere. And so he uses the imagery of the fall of Jerusalem, uses history to inform what the future will look like. So, And this is true with a lot of life as you look through history. History informs prophecy. And John used the history of the fall of Jerusalem to describe what it will look like when the kingdom of God moves in and invades the kingdoms of this world. So, you can get, of course, any of the messages from the past. We looked at each of the trumpets. How would that look in the fall of Jerusalem? And then we use that to forecast what could happen when the trumpets are finally being blown because the Lamb has opened that seventh and final seal that we're waiting for. Well, all of that is now done. We finished last week with the last, uh, the sixth trumpet. Remember the seven. The sixth trumpet was blown, and we read in chapter 9, verse 20, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And then he lists all the things that they did not repent from. A lot of sexuality and, and uh, adultery and idolatry. Um, all of the, just the big genres of human sin. They all come in there. So humanity was not getting the message. Now, when we went through the first seven seals, you'll remember the first six things happened. Then there was this pause before the seventh seal was opened, right? The seventh is always the climax and the reader's like, what's going to happen? And then John, our author is kind of, he plays with us a little bit. Right before the seventh is open, he had this Chapter seven was just this whole interlude where he says, before we get to the climax, let me tell you about what's been happening. Meanwhile, back home on the farm, this was going on. And so we have these moments in Revelation where it seems like the narrative is moving forward and then it halts. And John says, wait just a minute, hit pause. I have a commentary about something else that's been going on. And we learned there that chapter 7 gave us an answer to a question that was asked in chapter 6. The sixth seal was opened and we saw cataclysmic events on the earth. And the question was asked after all the, even the, the rulers and the slaves of the world, all humanity was hiding in the hills and in the mountains saying, hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne. And then they ask, who can stand before his judgment? Well, chapter 7 then says, I have an answer. And it goes on to describe 
the 144,000 who are sealed with the mark of God, these stand through judgment. More on that if you want to get the CD. So then we get to the seven trumpets. We've now gotten through the first six. We have another interlude, another pause. Meanwhile, and another question is being answered. The question then, who can stand? These can stand. The question now. So the rest of humanity refused to repent. What about Israel? Has God forsaken them? Wouldn't they finally repent? The city's destroyed. The temple's gone. It seems like God has turned his back on them. They're scattered all around the world. Paul prophesied, devoted three chapters of, Revel, uh, of Romans to answering the question, did God abandon Israel? And he says, no, of course not. Here's three chapters to explain how he's going to save them. Jesus himself said, look, you guys are going to reject me until the day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gentiles are going to trample over the city until their time is done. Uh, It implied that they're going to finally recognize Jesus. And what we have then in chapters 10 and 11 is this interlude where John is going to say, okay, we know the devastation of God's people. What's going to happen to them? So chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I, John, was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Oh, why? That's why if I'm John, can I write it in another language? Verse five, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So we have a new scroll showing up. We, talk just, we just talked about the one in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. Here's a new scroll. Um, what is this? Well, some have said that this scroll that the angel is holding is revelation in its entirety. That this is the vision given to John. We haven't read it yet, but John's about to eat the scroll. Um, others say that this is the second prophecy of revelation. Uh, you, this is this is if we had more of like a roundtable long night to discuss all these intricacies of the book, we would maybe have a nerdy discussion about this. But uh, there are some who see that the book ends in chapter eleven, and it just picks up at the beginning and retells the same vision from chapter twelve to the end, and that this book is chapters twelve through twenty-two, the so-called second prophecy. It's actually a ton of merit to that view, and I semi-adopt it. You'll hear about that next week. Um, but I don't think that that's what this scroll is, however. Others see that this scroll is the one in chapter 5, the one who had it in his hand, God sitting on the throne, and that now you notice that this little scroll is open. So this is that scroll now fully opened, and the angel's letting John take a look at it. However, it's called the little scroll, and before it wasn't called the little scroll, I think the adjective is letting us know this is different than the one from before. Um, And then another view is that this scroll is the sealed prophecy of the book of Daniel. If you know what I'm talking about, you are a severe theology nerd. 
um, and that it is now opened. So now let me explain it. Uh, in the book of Daniel, obviously, Revelation draws on the book of Daniel a lot because it's a prophetic book. And at the end of the book of Daniel, the angel tells Daniel to seal up the vision. And Daniel's like, I don't understand what, when's the end of these things going to be? And he's like, just stop asking questions, seal it up. It'll be, it'll make sense in the end. And so Daniel's considered there's like a sealed book of Daniel and that this could be that book, which is going to describe the end and what happens to the people of Israel in the end. And now it's not sealed anymore. It's open. And John's going to eat it because what he's now going to do is he's going to prophesy for us what the end looks like for Israel. Take it or leave it. So the seven thunders utter, we don't know what they say. We're not supposed to know what they say. People say this is what they were. That's a cult. Don't follow them. Uh, However, very likely the connection to the Old Testament, and it doesn't tell us what they are, but it gives us a good idea of what the seven thunders would be like, is Psalm 29. Psalm chapter 29, it's all about the voice of God. And it's so majestic. It talks about how the voice of God makes deer give birth. It's like he speaks and the mother pregnant deers are so terrified the baby comes out. Like that's talking about just the majestic voice of God, that it strips the bark off of trees. And it says seven times the voice of the Lord and then gives you that poetic description of that power. So for your reading pleasure tonight, you can go read Psalm 29. Now let's read about verse eight. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, and this is why it's bitter, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So real quick again, the idea that Revelation goes into a second retelling prophecy in chapter 12, you can see here, it sounds like everything's wrapping up and the angel's like, not so fast, John, you're going to have another prophecy to give. Uh, so that's why that theory is out there. Now, in verse 7, it tells us that in the days the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In other words, when the seventh trumpet blows, everything the prophets had hoped for in the Old Testament are going to finally be realized. What is that mystery that's going to be realized? I think people kind of probe into this too much. Very simply, it has to be the prophetic hopes of God ruling once again with humankind over the created world. The prophets foresee that. The prophets yearn for it. They also yearn for the restoration of the people of God because they're always abused, persecuted, and scattered. And that's what they're yearning for. And that's going to happen in the seventh trumpet. However, equally compelling is that the mystery of God is something Paul talks about often in Colossians and Ephesians. And he always defines the mystery as that when the Gentiles are included with Israel to receive their very promises. And whenever he talks about Jews and Gentiles being one in Christ, he says, this is the great mystery of God. And so obviously, whatever the future holds, that is part of God's plan. So you could just say, that's a subject of the greater end that the prophets are hoping for. Nonetheless, we see the seventh trumpet's about to come, and it's going to get real exciting. So chapter 11. As we enter chapter 11, we're still in that parenthetical pause moment. We're still addressing Israel. Um, You need to understand that this is, by every single commentator and book that I read on this, 90% of them agreed that this was the hardest section in Revelation. I agreed when all of a sudden done. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard because, well, 
It's hard. Maybe I can help you see some of that as we go. But mainly at the center of the difficulties are, there's the vision of a temple which doesn't exist as John is writing. There are these two witnesses who do these supernatural things and are these individuals? Do they represent a corporate entity? Is it the church? Are they two literal prophets? Is this future? Is this past? What is this? Um, then there's this beast. The beast is mentioned. Now, you know, because you're, you've probably been around long enough to hear about the Antichrist and the beast, but he's never been introduced. And all of a sudden, the beast is just casually mentioned. Yeah, the beast is going to kill him. Who's the beast? What is this? So this random introduction to a guy who doesn't get his formal introduction until chapter 13 shows up. And then you've got these witnesses that are slain and they just, they're left dead in the streets for three and a half days and everybody's giving gifts to each other because they're dead and they're sick and they're inhumane and they're not even burying these people. And then they just get up and they float into heaven. And then the city has a great earthquake and 7,000 people dying at the end. What, what was that? So we're going to do our best. 11 verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Okay, so first problem is there is no temple as John is writing. The one in Jerusalem is a heap of stones that the Romans have dismantled. So now we're launching into hypothetical scenario territory. And many of you have probably heard about the theories of a third temple, or in other words, a new temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, right next to what the Jews unaffectionately call the Golden Pimple, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Mosque, there on the Temple Mount on the east side of Jerusalem. Um, The mention of a temple suggests, oh yeah, well obviously, uh, of course there has to be a temple built for them to be talking about temples, so there will be a temple built in the future. But hold your horses, just rein them in just a little bit. Just because news excerpts talk about Jews trying to rebuild a temple doesn't mean that a new temple's gonna be built. Because this passage didn't say there's gonna be a new temple. That would be the logical thing to say because John knows it's destroyed and he knows what he's saying would sound very illogical without an explanation. By the way, most Jews are atheists today uh, because of the Holocaust. You do have your Orthodox Jews that still practice and some want the temple, but most of them could frankly care less about a temple. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see a new temple in Jerusalem. Is it possible? It's absolutely possible. There is literally a movement trying to get it to happen. Is it necessary in the text of Revelation. Absolutely not necessary. So we'll continue to talk about it, however. So John is uh, given, there was a, uh, he was given a staff to measure the temple. This isn't, uh, modern commentators like to say, oh, this is so that you can rebuild it. You need to know how big it was. You're totally missing prophetic poetry here. In prophetic poetry, measuring something always meant God's protection or judgment of the thing measured. So you go to Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel saw an angel measuring, in a vision, measuring a temple because God was claiming this as his. Um, in Zechariah chapter 2, you see uh, a young boy is given a measuring rod in his vision and he's measuring the city of Jerusalem and we're told in the vision that he's measuring the city because God is going to bring great prosperity to Jerusalem and they won't even need a wall because there's going to be so much peace that they don't need walls to hide behind anymore. So this measuring of the temple should speak to us as God is selecting the worshipers in it to be protected. But there's a little caveat here. Don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now we're getting really complicated because there's all these terms now. Um, Don't measure the outside part of the temple. So the worshipers in it are measured. This is a sign of protection. These are his. He owns them. But don't measure the outside. So there's this picture of a temple and the protected ones within it. And then around the temple, there are pagans and Gentiles who are trampling and they're unclean and unholy. So that's the picture we're starting to see. Now, in your rebuilding the temple scenario, they say that, well, we will now discover that the Holy of Holies is actually to the side of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. That 
Muslim mosque. Uh, so they're going to discover, wait a minute, they can coexist, we'll build a wall, and technically then the Muslims will be in the outer courts trampling the temple. Mount and the Holy of Holies will be there and protect it. That does make sense and that does seem possible. Um, however, in the prophetic poetry, it seems more likely that it's talking about God will have people that are protected and around them in the world, they live in a hostile world and they are going to be suffocated and surrounded and it may not be pretty the whole time. Uh, that's just another way to see it. Uh, because Jesus says that, you notice he says that they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. Jesus in, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in Luke 21, 24, he says that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself though, so I'll just back up. Okay, and now this is going to happen for 42 months. So, in our rebuilt temple scenario, this means 42 months is about three and a half years. So, the beast, the Antichrist, is in charge. He makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. And um, for three and a half years, I guess, the temple will be up, and it will be side-by-side with the Muslims. The only problem here is that 42 months is very hard to read. Now, we want to read it literally, right? 42 months means 42 months. Why question it? It makes sense. Leave it alone. <sighs> this is why to question it. Okay, Revelation uses this time period, three and a half years, has three different phrases for it. 42 months. You see that here. Look at verse three. We haven't read it yet, but just look ahead. It says that these guys will prophesy for 1260 days. That's 42 months. It's three and a half years. Why did we change the wording? I don't know, but he did. Uh, You go to 12 verse 14. So you're going to jump ahead of chapter 12. We're cheating. We're looking ahead. 12, 14. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time, which is supposed to equate to three and a half years. How do you know that? Well, if you go up up to 12, verse 6, the same woman who's fleeting from the same serpent, who's given protection in the same wilderness, is hiding there, nourished for 1,260 days. Therefore, 1,260 days is a time and times and half a time. I'm sorry, this is confusing. I didn't write it. So we have three ways of saying three and a half years. Okay, so what are these three and a half years? Well, you have those people that look at Revelation and like, mm, yep, this was all fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. So the three and a half years refer to the Jewish war. It was about three and a half years. 66 to 70 AD, they were besieged and the Romans took them down. Um, you have those who like to read Revelation as, uh, it's all just metaphor for today. So they would say that these three and a half years refer to the larger church age. It's a very metaphorical number from the time Jesus ascends to whenever he comes back. That is the three and a half years. So we're in the middle of a very long three and a half years. Uh, If you're looking at this, like Calvary Chapel people, as a book about the future, you see the three and a half years as the great tribulation. Now, terminology definition time. The tribulation is a word that we use to talk about the Antichrist seven-year reign over the whole world when he's doing his thing. The great tribulation refers to halfway into that tribulation when he gets possessed and thinks he's God and begins to wreak havoc. That is the last three and a half years that's known as the great tribulation. So... It's tempting to take these three and a half years literally and say, well, of course, they refer to those last three and a half years. However, as you're getting used to by now, I guess, I don't know. Let's look at this a little more closely. Where does this idea come from? Remember we're asking prophetic poetry. Where in the Old Testament is this coming from? 42 months, 1260 days, Nowhere. But a time and times and half a time, that comes from Daniel, the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 25, and chapter 12, verse 7. 
7.25 and 12.7, they use the phrase a time and times and half a time. And why does Daniel use that phrase? That phrase is used when it's talking about limiting the persecution of the beast over Israel and the ending, the cessation of offerings and sacrifices in the Jewish temple. In short, Daniel says the Jews are going to be persecuted by a beast and the temple will cease to function. But each time he says it's only for a time and times and half a time. Okay, that's where it comes from. Jesus seems to refer to Daniel's vision when he says, Luke 21, 24, I already read it, but he seems to be alluding to Daniel when he says, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And guess what? What did you know? He was a prophet. He was right. 80, 70 rolls around. The uh, the Gentiles via the Roman armies trod down the city. Has Israel ever run Jerusalem as their own since? Have they ever had a temple in which they worship God freely since? The answer is no. Therefore, if Jesus is alluding to Daniel's prophecies about persecution and loss of temple, then Jesus is defining a time, times, and half a time, not to three and a half literal years, but to the time between AD 70 and today. Further, an angel tells Daniel that Israel's troubles will last, again, for a time, times, and half a time, uh, when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. So in other words, that's Daniel 12, 7. In other words, a time, times, and half a time signifies the time that Israel loses power over their kingdom and land. And that that, that that time period will be snapped to an end when Israel's powerlessness is snapped to an end. Israel's still powerless. The times are still going, therefore. Further, since the Gentiles still trample Jerusalem, oh, I guess I already said this to you. Since the Gentiles still trample Jerusalem and the temple still ceases to function, it seems that a time, times, and half a time cannot be a literal 3.5 years because it's still going on. And then finally, (laughs) I already showed you that Revelation uses the phrase in 12.14. It uses the phrase a time, times, and half a time. So you know it's thinking about Daniel. And then defines the meaning of a time, times, and half a time. Or I'm sorry, it doesn't define it, but it it also uses synonymously the phrase uh, 12... 160 days in 12 verse 6. So 12, 60 days, time, times, and half a time equal the same amount of time. Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg, is the question. Do we, in other words, see the number, 1260, defining the phrase, time, times, half a time, Or do we see the phrase defining the number? If the number defines the phrase, then a time, times, and half a time is a literal three and a half years. But we can't read it that way. Why? Because I just showed you. The phrase time, times, and half a time comes from the Old Testament. That's the one that the Revelation's working off of. The phrase is defining 1260 days and 42 months. So if the phrase is anywhere from 8072 today and onward, then, then 42 months and 1260 days are the same. In short, if you check me out, tune me out, check back in, here's a sum, Reader Digest, last paragraph you all read. These numbers seem to be metaphorical. They're not literal. So, in other words, reeling it all the way back in, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Read since eighty seventy. Jerusalem's been trampled. Yeah, I can understand that. I can see that, and that makes sense. So, all this is to say, the question here is, what is happening about Israel? If the city is trampled, what John wants us to see is that he has measured people inside a figurative temple 
They're the protected ones. In other words, there's a remnant of Jews that even to this day are following the Messiah. A small remnant, but they're there. God has not given up on them. The promises are being carried by this remnant. So, verse 3, And I will grant authority to my witnesses, my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. In other words, over that same figurative three and a half year period. (laughs) So now who are these two witnesses? Well, this actually opens up quite a few possibilities. It could be the church. We've been trying to witness to the Jews forever and ever. We're following their Messiah. And why two? It's not that there's only two people in the church. It's that two was always what made a testimony true in the Jewish tradition. By the mouth of two or more witnesses, something is established. So the two witnesses saying the church's testimony is true and authentic. Um, It could also just simply be referring to uh, the law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, who showed up with Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. And look, uh, Jews, your old Old Testament has been testifying to you this whole time that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, It could be literal prophets that make a comeback in the future, too. Like, here we are, and they're doing these crazy things. We don't know, in other words, but we know that the Jewish people have a witness and that the remnant sees it, and they're trying to witness to the rest. Well, these, verse 4, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, those two olive trees are Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor leading the rebuilding of the temple efforts. Are those two going to literally show back up? Hmm. But this could be the witnesses that are like those two figures trying to rebuild the truest temple that isn't an actual physical structure, but it's the Jewish people following the Messiah, the newest temple yet. It's one way to look at that. Verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours out their mouth, consumes their foes, and if anyone would harm them, this is how they're doomed to die. Verse 6, they have power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, like Elijah. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, like Moses, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, like Moses, and often, as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, remember he's randomly introduced here, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So we know this is Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. But it's become as pagan as Sodom and Egypt. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them place in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents before these two prophets who had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Yay, ding dong, the witch is dead, except they're two prophets. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. No kidding. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And so many people talk about the two prophets being the church, the witness of the church would say, here you have the rapture of the church, which if you see the rapture happening before any of this is going on, then that obviously doesn't work for you and you got to figure it out another way. Um, (laughs) I don't think that that's talking about the church anyways. Uh, Although they do follow the footsteps of Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension, which is interesting, but all Christians do that in a sense anyways. We will be resurrected after our deaths too. But here's the big point in verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So now they're giving glory to God in heaven. Do you remember how we started this interlude? Nobody in humanity was repenting from the first six trumpets. They hear the king is about to make an announcement. The royal trumpets are blowing. Everyone's like, whatever. We've got our kingdoms. What about Israel? 
Well, we look at this. We see these Jewish aspects. We see that there's a selected remnant of the Jews. They're, they're, they're symbolized by the measurement. Like they're the true temple that is existing in place of the one that vanished. Um, we see these witnesses trying to get the rest of the Jews to believe. The witnesses are killed. They ascend into heaven. And then an earthquake happens. And now the rest of Jerusalem believes. You see what's happening here? The remnant becomes a revival. This is where Paul's message in Romans 11 verses 25 to 27, where he says, and eventually all Israel will be saved. This is where that happens. This is where Jesus foreseeing that his people are going to reject him, but in the future receive him. This is where that happens. This is where Revelation opens in chapter one, verse seven, and says he's coming with the clouds and those who pierced him will see him and mourn. Because they now believe this is where this happens. Right before the seventh trumpet is blown, we seem to have a very difficult passage which is trying to describe the little remnant measured in the midst of a pagan sea is now turning to the true Messiah. And that, at least the Jewish people hear the trumpets about to announce the royal pronouncement. And they're ready for that kingdom to come. It would fit with the rest of scripture if you accept my interpretations or not. (laughs) It is difficult. We could have a long discussion afterward about many things. So, to further the idea that this is a remnant becoming a revival, verse 13 itself lends two very, very, very heavy clues. First, why does a tenth of the city fall? Quite simply, Isaiah 6, verse 13, and Amos 5, 3. Back to prophetic poetry. When the prophet said Jerusalem's going to fall, they often described a tenth of the city falling. Oh, here's, I'm sorry, a tenth of the city surviving. Well, here we have the reverse, a tenth of the city falling. You might remember 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah just defeats the prophets of Baal. He's going to be killed by the wicked queen Jezebel. And then he's hiding in a cave, whimpering to God, God, why, aren't you, why am I the only one left? And God says, Elijah, man up. I have 7,000 who have not worshipped Baal. And here, 7,000 are living in Elijah's time. 7,000 die in this earthquake. These are two heavy prophetic poetic pictures of Old Testament talking about Israel's destruction or survival. Now we see all these reversed. So in other words, only a tenth of the city will survive. Now only a tenth of the city will be destroyed. Only 7,000 believed. Well, now only 7,000 will die. Implication that the rest are now believing. You see what John's vision is doing is it's taking the Old Testament pictures and it's punching them inside out to say the remnant is now a revival. And we see the promises of God finally coming true, coming to pass. Like the angel told John in 10 verse 7, in the days of the seventh trumpet to be sounded, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Everything will finally come to pass, even the things that seem to be ignored for thousands of years. Well, we then come to the seventh trumpet, but we'll do that one next week. It's it's a nice stopping place anyways. So we just covered the interlude. We'll get the last and final trumpet next week and go into chapter 12 as well. Um, But I want us to finish with just one thought that I had as as I was looking at all this. And the worship team, you guys can, you guys can get ready. Um, we've watched, whether it be the news, YouTube videos, word of mouth, but we've watched persecution against the church. Some of the most recently graphic images come directly from ISIS against Christians, right? But when we hear about these horrible things and Often, you know, we pick on the Muslims for persecuting the church, and they are. I don't mean to sound like they're being singled out, but the persecution is just worldwide anyways. And I listen to prayers, and I get it. It, We hurt for our brothers and sisters. I listen to prayers, and there's a lot of angst and a lot of paranoia about persecution. Um, The biblical vision of persecution is never a downer. 
Now, us Americans who expect our 80 years of life, and if I'm putting money into a 401k, I better see that in my end of years, and, and all these things. Like, this is our mentality. Our long life and the pursuit of happiness till we die. And we're paranoid of death. We don't do death well. And when we hear of Christians dying, oh, we know where they're going, it's fine, but we're still worried because we're freaked out that it might come to our nation. No, I don't want that to happen. But the biblical vision of martyrdom is always in the positive. And in fact, I would go as far to say, you could have your own Bible study on this later, but that the Bible is suggesting that the gospel does not move forward without witnesses who die for what they say. And the early church fathers are known for saying that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church and that the church would never move forward without people who are willing to die And we see these two witnesses who are slain by the beast and in a humiliating way, not even buried, but God doesn't care. He's not offended. He just does something even more amazing with them. And it's only because they died that the rest of the city woke up to the trumpet warnings of the coming king. People have suggested that maybe the Middle East is not Christianized. I know it's slowly moving out there and you hear of great stories, but that it's not Christianized because no one's willing to die in the Middle East. We want to go and drop our leaflets and our gospel tracts and get out of there. That's not how people coming out of paganism come to Christianity. They come as we came to God through Jesus's blood. The world comes to God through our blood. And we must not despair if Christians are dying. God has a plan, and our death, the tragedy of evil against good, is part of moving the plan forward. It might sound sick and twisted and sadistic to an extent, but when we're in the resurrected heaven and earth, and he's reigning and ruling, and we're right there with him, we're going to be amazed that he was able to get it done. And therefore, brothers and sisters, Let us not despair. I'm not asking you to go kill yourself or somebody. That's not very fruitful. But don't despair if the time comes for your bell to be donged. (laughs) Or when we read about it around the world. God is the one who's seated on the throne. He's not pacing. And he's not toweling up like we have on the news. Oh, more died in Afghanistan. He's not toweling them up in a heaven chalkboard saying, what are we going to do? Hurry up, Jesus. Get, you know, like, get your act together. They're not doing that. In fact, I'm, and I'm ranting. I'm trying to end. I'm sorry. One verse and we'll be done. Remember back in the fifth seal, chapter six, verse 11, the martyrs are crying out, when are you going to avenge our blood? Verse 11, it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers, should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I don't know that there's literally a countdown, like God had X amount of martyrs planned, and once we get to that last one, it's done. I don't know that there's like a literal countdown, but the point is that God has planned martyrdom in his kingdom to come, in the coming of the kingdom. So let us not despair. But let us pray for our brothers and sisters in tribulation that they may hold fast.